There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's the last debunking economics podcast of the year. And that has to be one of the good things from 2016, doesn't it? We started this podcast. Maybe 2017 will be the year you subscribe to it, if you haven't already. Uh, I'm Phil Dobby, and Steve Keen is with me, too. Uh, he's in Sydney. I'm in, um, I'm in Surrey, basically, where it's cold and it's warm where he is. But what else for 2017, the year when it seems likely a lot of things are going to kick off? In many ways, I think 2016 was just setting the scene for the next 12 months. Now, Trump is going to be in power. The UK is going to invoke Article 50. We've got a few important uh, European elections as well. So uh, let's look at uh, things that are going to happen in 2017. So look, I've I've sort of had a, a guess at what I think you might say, and you may agree or disagree with it. So let me give you mine first. I think we're going to see, uh, or you're going to think we're going to see the collapse of the euro. If we don't see the collapse of the euro, then Europe's going to be pretty sick. We're going to see further the rise of the right. Uh, I'm not quite sure that Le Pen will necessarily win the uh, win the vote in France, but she might come very close to it. Australia has already had one term of negative growth. Perhaps it's going to have another one and Australia goes into a recession. And uh, a bit of a reality check on Trump. Maybe he's not going to deliver on all of those promises after all. And the share markets and the money markets, everybody here is so uh, surprisingly um, buoyant and exuberant about Trump's victory are going to have a reality check. There, am I close? I think you, I think I'll give you two out of three. <laughs> well, that's think, not bad. Uh, I gave you four, but that's fine. Two bad. out of four, you, then. You pass, then pass. <laughs> <laughs> the euro, the euro, I think, is on its last legs, and there's two ways it could fall next year. One is by uh, the political chaos that's happened already in Italy, going further. A general election being called, Beppo Grillo's party coming to power. They're not Beppo Grillo because of the uh, the, the car accident that gave him a manslaughter charge. That means he can't become president or prime minister. Uh, but his party in power, referendum put up to the Italians. And if Beppo does as good a job on selling the need to get out of the euro as he did in saying, uh, turn down the referendum for Renzi, uh, then we could have Italians voting to leave the leave the euro and bring in the lira. That's the complicated path. The simpler path would be if Marine Le Pen wins. And having spoken to a few of my lefty friends in France in the last few few days, uh, they are really of the mind that if they've got a choice between Fallon and Pen, they might go and buy a croissant. <laughs> and if that happens on a large enough scale, then Le Pen will certainly get through in the first round because the socialists, by aligning themselves with the European Union, uh, Hollande has destroyed the socialists. No chance of any socialists getting through the, se- through the second round of the French elections. So it'll be Fallon versus Le Pen. And if the right, the left decides to stay home because it's basically a choice between lousy, lousy coffee and, and even worse coffee... Um, then the, we could have Marine Le Pen potentially winning, and she has said on day one she leaves the euro. Right. And so that's, that's that's really even quite drastic. It, right, it is. So there's two countries potentially leaving the euro. So if that if that happens, I guess the euro just doesn't. It, it's just not sustainable. Even if they uh, even if they don't, is it still sustainable? If, even if nobody else leaves, no. if, if, if Britain leaves, it's, who, it's never. It, it, it's never been sustainable, and the European Union is actually making it worse with its policies, like imposing a three and a half percent of GDP primary surplus on the Greek government for the next 10 or 15 
15 years. We have a bunch of people in charge. This is the, the school of thought that uh, Schäuble comes from called ordo-liberalism. And that basically takes an Austrian view about the, uh, the, the, um, the economy should be totally privately run but adds to it the twist you need the state to enforce the rules and the role of the state is to enforce contracts and as long as that is done capitalism works fine they leave out the possibility you can get signed up for a debt contract that you can't repay and they basically say it doesn't matter we're going to add they've only got to continue repaying the debt and what it means ultimately you can be completely fold you go bankrupt and they say you've still got to pay the debt they say, but i haven't got any money tough like you could still pay the debt and and that is the situation they've pushed europe into which is absolutely um suicidal economically suicidal so it's it's both the, the design of it and the attitude of the auto liberalists that is causing this complete collapse of the euro at some point it's only a question of when right and then we've got the situation in italy haven't we where we've got the uh, the italian banks yeah. owing billions uh, the government says that they're going to bail them out but where's the where's the government going to get the money from it has to be the Euro central bank because the italian government has no bank because it signed up to the euro so they've got to rely again on Brussels doing the right thing and bailing the banks out. But even if the banks bail the banks out, they're not going to bail the bank's customers out. And that's what's actually the problem. In every, every country in the world, it's the, it's the customers, the banks having too much debt, not the, uh, not the banks themselves uh, necessarily, unless the customers can't pay their, pay their debts and then bad debts accumulate, which is what's been happening in, in Italy. I believe there's something like about 20% of GDP worth of bad loans in Italy, and they're mainly uh, the corporate sector. What that means is the corporate sector uh, is barely able to pay its, pay its debt in the aggregate and consequently there's no investment going on, so the economy is limping. And the only way to get out of it is to reduce that private debt. But, of course, that's something that you're not going to get the auto-liberals who dominate the um, European Union via Schäuble in particular to actually agree to. So we're going to get a, maybe a, a temporary fix to the liquidity problems of the banks to rejig their equity levels and make them able to lend again. But, of course, they're not going to make any loans, and the loans they have got are going to remain bad in, in, in a substantial proportion of them. It's just going to be delaying the inevitable breakdown. Right. So the only way to really bail out is to leave, to leave the euro and get away from the auto-liberals. Right. But, I mean, what about quantitative easing? I mean, that's being used around the world to try and remedy some of these problems. I mean, uh, is, is that going to help when you've got such massive debt? Well, no, it's not, you know, the quantitative easing isn't debt. I mean, it, it's, it's private money that generates the private debt. But what's actually happening with the quantitative easing is they're buying bonds and, and bonds and other financial assets off the financial sector, yeah. either off the banks or more broadly off, off non-bank financial institutions like superannuation firms and pensions and, and things of that nature. So what they're doing is generating more money that circulates predominantly in the financial sector with a small amount dribbling over in into the, into the private sector, the only way to really uh, tackle it is put that money directly into the, into the non-financial private sector. But that's what they're refusing to do. That's people's quantitative easing. That would work. What they're doing now just simply inflates asset prices in the forlorn belief this will cause people to spend more money when the people we're talking about have got too much money to begin with and if they spent, that actually drive down the value of their... Uh, of their financial assets. So if they did, if they did pump money in, as uh, as Kevin Rudd did, of course, in, in, in Australia, and it did stop, well, I mean, you know, many people argue it stopped Australia getting uh, into, into a recession while the rest of the world was falling into one. If they, huh. did, if they did that, could that save the euro and save Europe? It could. It could. But they won't do it. Right. They so categorically on, will not do it. So on that basis, you reckon the days are numbered. It may not be 2017, but certainly if we have a, 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 a political change, uh, that can expedite it as we start seeing countries leave. Um, so, okay, well, that, that seems... A, and I don't think you're the only one who's on the, the thinking along those lines. I think that seems to be an increasingly mm. common view, doesn't it, that the days yeah. for Europe are numbered. 
Yep. One down. Okay. Okay. Uh, rise of the right. We've sort of talked about uh, because we talked because that's that. But I mean, a question to ask is why? Why all of a sudden? I don't get this. Why is it the people who are suffering are suddenly turning to the right? The people who are they're turning to to the people who are actually making their life worse. I don't understand why this shift to the right. It te- well, whenever there's a breakdown, you get poor people on the streets, and the people who aren't yet poor enough to be on the streets blame them for the situation they're in. In so many words, that tends to be a large part of it. We also have the whole hangover from the uh, anti-Semitic days, and and that's still you know, very, very prevalent. Um, and that just fuels this argument. It's all due to some minority group you're not part of. And also, of course, when we're having huge waves of refugees we're seeing right now from many other factors, including financial breakdown, but also mainly climate hassles in the Middle East, um, that just fuels that blame the blame the outsider for the situation you're in. Yeah, but it's bizarre who they turn to because, I mean, you look in the United States, for example, and uh, people didn't like Hillary Clinton because they argued that she was in the pockets of Wall Street. So what do they turn to? They turn to a real estate agent, which is possibly potentially worse. Yeah, I know. I know. There's no lot. There's no when when people are are under huge amounts of pressure, there's no necessary logic to the explanation they generate for why there's there's troubles. All right. Australia's recession was another one I gave. Do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, pretty, very, very high likelihood because all the other factors which have kept Australia afloat for the last few years are now turning in the opposite direction. So Chinese exports certainly can't be relied upon anymore. The mining boom is over and there's a dramatic, they're calling the, the, the CapEx cliff, the fall of capital expenditure predominantly because mining expenditures to- totally disappeared. The only thing keeping the country going is the housing bubble. And the housing bubble, for that to continue, relies people to continue borrowing large amounts of money every year, more than they earn. And in Australia's case, that now means that Australia has a private, has a household debt ratio of a, something like 125% of GDP. So to keep the economy going, it's got to be 100, 135%, 140% at the end of next year, 150 160% the year after that. We're in territory no country has ever got into before. Right. We, we know how it's yeah. going to play out, though, because we know that the, uh, uh, the central bank, the... Uh, the RBA is going to say, uh, oh, look, we ha- we're not getting the growth we expected. We're nowhere near the inflation we expected. Uh, so we're going to lower interest rates. And they'll probably do that a couple of times next year. And that's going to make the situation worse. Well, the funny thing is it'll suck people back into borrowing money again. That's what has been happening with this whole uh, shift to low interest rates, which the bank did not think it was going to have to do, by the way. This is all stuff going against their expectations. What they're hoping at the moment is that with the, if a boom takes off in America, and that's our next topic, uh, that will lead to them having a higher floor for a global interest rate. It's not the, not the 0% at the last uh you know, t- 10 years pretty much but at least half a percent if not one percent therefore all they've got to do is go down two levels to where they're the same scale as everybody else in the world but i think they'll be fine that the australian economy gets gets into a new situation where low rates in australia are lower than the rest of the world because having a failed to delever in fact having leave it up after the crisis unlike america and england and many other countries that fell into the debt trap back in 2008 having leave it up rather than leave it down then are going to find that they've got to continue dropping rates below what the rest of the world pays. So Australia could have lowest interest rates in the world for a while rather than the highest ones. No. And that could be rather rather a novel situation for the Australian Reserve Bank to find themselves in. <laughs> it certainly could. And they, des- they, des- and they deserve it. Right. But, frankly. I mean, but, but perhaps everybody else doesn't deserve it because the country is going to go through a period of hurt. But I, sp- I suppose in a way, isn't that sort of like – is that how – economics works in terms of correcting yourself a little bit because out of this we're also going to see a very low australian dollar which perhaps gives the opportunity for australia to start to develop 
new export markets to replace all that uh, stuff they were digging out of the ground. That's fundamentally what they can rely upon to some extent. But the trouble is the whole process the Australian government has gone through in the last 30 years of following the line of conventional economics, the specialisation of what leads to growth, it means that we've totally put our eggs into the, into the minerals and to some extent agriculture basket. And unless there's a revival in demands for minerals or agriculture from the rest of the world, we haven't got the capacity to produce other things anyway. And there's actually a, a classic study I really recommend people to take a look at called the Atlas of Economic Complexity, uh, which is done by a bunch of data scientists, not economists, at Harvard University. And they have found by looking at the empirical data that success countries have diversified industrial structures, not specialised ones. Yeah. And in the ranking of, of, the, of the level of diversity of different members of the OECD, um, the country with the lowest level of industrial diversity is, have a guess, Australia. So yeah. we've, 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 we've crueled our capacity to generate new industries and we've shut down the old ones. So um, that, that price advantage we might get, which certainly England has a possibility of exploiting with its falling pound, uh, that won't be available to the Australians in, to exploit in the same sense because they've got rid of the industries. The one thing they can do, of course, is tourism. Yeah, I, I, if it wasn't such a bloody long way, absolutely. So there's a limit, exactly, that's there's a, the problem. The, the limit to how far that can go. But uh, actually, just while we're talking about Britain, before we get on to Trump as the, the final point then, uh, Britain, soft exit or uh, soft Brexit or hard Brexit, does it really make any difference? I know your views on this. You think Britain's made a smart move here. And in fact, the, the lower value of the pound is going to help the, uh, uh, the economy to develop more uh, of an export industry. So I guess on that basis, you'd be saying, well, yeah, bring it on. Hard Brexit is probably the best way. Well, I think the, the, the level of stumbling through that's going to occur is going to mean whatever hard or soft is going to be slow. Yeah. And but at least as it starts happening, England's going to be preparing to leave the Euro, the European Union at the same time that I think the European Union itself is going to fall apart when the Euro itself collapses. So having people have seen this as like, I mean, I've seen so many cartoons showing a person, you know, driving a car off a road or... Uh, or jumping out of a plane without a parachute. They may have jumped out without a parachute. They're sewing one out of their clothes as they fall, but the plane itself may explode in the sky above them. Uh, and, and I think in that sense, getting ready to leave the euro before the euro, it's European, leave, leaving the European Union before the euro itself explodes or implodes may actually turn out to be good timing for the British, as well as taking advantage of about a 20% fall in their currency. Yeah, which could go low, of course, next year. Who knows? I mean, it's uh, mm. more than likely, isn't it? Uh, and and, yeah. and until uh, that, uh, yeah, the collapse, <laughs> the collapse of the European community. All right, so uh, the elephant in the room, uh, Trump. Uh, I, I believe that there'll be a reality check. I, and I think the reality check will be this misunderstanding as to who's going to pay for all of these, uh, these public works. I think he's expecting that it's all going to be paid for by the private sector and uh, there's going to be no public money involved in this. And that's going to be, uh, when he realizes that that's not possible, um, then it, it's all going to come home to roost for him. Well, I think I think you're right on the fact that he thinks he's going to get funded by the private sector. And frankly, to do the level of spending he's talking about, the private sector would have to borrow money to generate that. Now they may well do that. You could have a corporate sector borrowing spree taking over from the from the from the household sector borrowing spree. But corporates are much more restrained about how much debt they let themselves get into in the aggregate level. So if you look at the cycles in household debt versus the cycles in uh, business debt. There really are no cycles in household debt. When there's a bubble, it just goes right up. When it reaches a peak, it comes right down again. But the business sector goes up and down according to the business cycle. But there is a ceiling. 
they won't go beyond about 80% of GDP in the American case as a level of corporate debt. So... Uh, and they, they, also expect, they also expect a return on their investment as well. They so. expect a return, yeah, yeah. So he's going to find that probably he will have to finance it out of the out of the government purse. But what he's going to realise, certainly if he knows his accounting, and he appears to to, appears to know that uh, rather better than most politicians, he'll realise he can just spend. He can issue the bonds. The bonds, effectively, once the bonds are issued, the government spends. It presumes it has the money, and the central bank does the same thing. That's how it works. So as soon as he starts spending uh, government money, he realises that he owns his own bank. He can finance this with the capacity of the central bank in America to finance the American Treasury, which is the way it operates. So the spending will still occur, but it'll be mainly government spending, and he's going to get a gigantic budget deficit, which all his hawks, budget hawks in his deficit hawks in his administration are going to scream about. He'll walk right over the top of them, like he's walked over the top of everybody else. That's my feeling. He'll just get there and find that it works, believe he can do it for a few years, Years, which he will do, and then when he when he wants to hand over to his successor Ivanka Trump, um, he will go back into slashing spending to try to bring the budget back into balance again, and he'll he'll destroy her election chances because he'll cause a recession halfway through his second term. So, and and, and in the meantime, I mean, who's going to win from all of this? Because uh, you know he's talked about middle America and and trying to help the uh, supposedly the vast swathes of unemployed people who voted for him or underemployed people, and yet and yet you know the if you believe the statistics, there's not that many of them, and you know if you believe the uh, the central bank, if you believe the Fed, um, you know that you know that employment is booming. You know it's 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 close to full employment, which means Who's going to work on all these projects that uh, that, that Trump is uh, that introducing? Surely it's going to just create a wage push inflation. The four million people who aren't counted as unemployed after two thousand—that's who's going to employ. And this, oh, this right. is one of those cases. A lot of stuff about false facts and you know fake news and stuff like that. It's this. This it's absolutely genuine. The crazy thing is the same institution that publishes the fake news of the unemployment rate also publishes the real news of the employment rate. Now, if the employment rate, unemployment rate was, was true news, then the unemployment rate and the employment rate should move in opposite direction to each other in similar magnitudes. They don't. So I recommend people go to what's called the St. Louis FRED, stands for the Federal Reserve Economic Database, brilliant database there, and just type in employment to population ratio for 25 to 54-year-olds. See what comes up. What you'll see is that the ratio of people between 25 and 54, which of course is people who have mainly left university and mainly aren't trying to retire, so these people should be in the workforce, peaked at something like about, I think, 82% or so in uh, 2000. It's now down to 78%, fell as low as about 76% during the recession. But if you look at the demographic shifts that occurred over that time as well and take out the demographic change that has reduced that particular population cohort, there are 2 million less people who have got a job now than had in 2007 in that age group, and there are 4 million less than had a job in 2000 or 1999. So there's plenty of people for him to employ. And if he does cause that level of a boom, they'll vote for him again in spades in the, in the second in the 2020 election, and he'll win in a landslide. Will they all be the big winners, though? Or, you know, issuing all these vast numbers of bonds, is it going to be the, uh, the, the bankers who are dealing in those bonds and taking their slices and, you know, people working in the bond markets that are actually going to be the big winners because there's so much more of it out there? Well, that'll be partly the case as well, but I'm sure there'll be plenty of bonders uh, of... Um, 
of Trump Associates trying to work out how to get their hands on some of that cash generated by the by the spending as well. well possibly, is, and him is, himself, yeah, no we, doubt. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah we, we, we draw a lot of parallels to the 1930s these days, and people are rather, um, you know, they, they, you don't want to, you, you, there's the guy's name you can't mention. But that's, this is how Hitler managed to get the German economy booming. And of all things, this is quite weird, he learned part of what he knows about how to do it by that well-known American fascist, Henry Ford. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so there it's are It's not some- well-known that he's a fascist, I might add, but he was. <laughs> was he really? So, um, mm. He was. There's a, there's a horrible publication called The International Jew, which somebody referred me to recently. I'd never read it before. It was it made me sick to read the damn thing. But in there, he talked about the creation of money and how the government's got unlimited capacity to do it. And that is one of two sources we know Hitler read in jail uh, back in the 19, I think 1919 or thereabouts. Uh, and he actually wrote a, the one person he wrote a thank you to in Mein Kampf was Henry Ford. <laughs> Jesus. So, so I'm not sure what yeah, we call. No. So we do, what do we call this podcast? Fascism. Is it all that bad? Has it had a bad press? <laughs> I'm, I, I still think it probably is. But I mean, it, it certainly, you know, on uh, you know the, the 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 other comparison is, you know, Henry Ford was a businessman. Donald Trump's a businessman, uh, and mm. as you say, they both perhaps know how to get the economy moving. So, so it doesn't mean we finished 2017 with with Australia looking pretty sad, the UK not looking too bad at all. Europe looking pretty sick, and, uh, and and Australia in the depths of recession. And America booming. And America booming, yeah. I think that's quite possible for 2017. Well, okay. Well, we'll check back in a year's time and see how accurate you've been. Uh, <laughs> have, a, have, a, have a good New Year's Eve. Uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay, mate. Thank you. And, uh, yes, if you're listening to this before New Year kicks in, well, uh, party hard. Party like it's 1999, because you were possibly a lot better off back then. Uh, I'm Phil Dobby. Thanks for listening. We will be back again with another edition next week of the Debunking Economics podcast. You can find us at debunkingeconomics.com, and you can subscribe there, too. Have yourself a great week. Thanks for listening. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.